Hello and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Melissa Jobson and I'm standing in for Alan Boswell while he's on paternity leave. Today, we'll be speaking about the Ukraine conflict as seen from Africa. I'm delighted to welcome to the show Pilani Matembu, the Executive Director of the Institute for Global Dialogue, a South African think tank. Welcome to the Horn, Pilani. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with last week's vote at the UN General Assembly on a resolution condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the positions taken by African countries. 28 voted in favour of the resolution, including Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria and Egypt, while 25 abstained, including South Africa, Senegal and Sudan. Five didn't vote at all and one, Eritrea, voted against the resolution. In Europe and elsewhere, there was some surprise that more African countries didn't speak out more clearly against the invasion, which obviously contravened international principles of sovereignty and the non-use of force that are enshrined in the UN Charter. Pilani, why wasn't there more African support for the resolution and how do you explain the divisions within the continent which was split almost 50-50 between those countries that voted in favour of the resolution and those that didn't? Well, firstly, I think whilst it may have been a surprise, let's say in Europe, I wasn't uh, that surprised taking into account the manner in which this conflict is largely viewed. It's not viewed uh, purely as a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It's viewed in a broader sense as an ongoing uh, escalation of tensions uh, between uh, Russia and Europe on the one side, but more specifically between Russia and the US and Russia and NATO. So I think that explains the reasoning why not you know the majority of countries actually supported but others abstained and others just were not there when the voting happened so if we look at it as a a, a purely russia ukraine then perhaps i think more countries would have uh, supported the resolution and what we then have to go back to is the history of non-alignment when it comes to Uh, foreign policy orientation uh, within Africa, especially amongst uh, certain key countries uh, such as South Africa. Non-alignment has basically argued that, you know, countries, yes, should take a principled position which advocates for the peaceful resolution of conflicts um, wherever uh, they occur, but to not necessarily side with any of um, the power blocks when it comes to Uh, global politics. So I think if we look back into the orientation of many of these countries, especially the countries that uh, chose to abstain, it explains that on many parts uh, of the continent, supporting it uh, would be seen as uh, not necessarily contributing towards creating an environment for dialogue. Uh, which is what many of these countries have actually advocated. So I wasn't too surprised with the manner in which the votes uh, went. However, I do think there was also not a lot of coordination within the continent. So I don't think the matter was rigorously discussed 
within Africa, amongst the sub-regional economic communities, and also within the parameters of the African Union, in order to come to a more or less consensus on what was happening. And would you have expected, perhaps, for African countries to have had a bit more of a caucus and come up with a continental position on the conflict? Uh, Yes, but I think it's not too late. I think this is still something that is likely to uh, happen. So yes, the the resolution has been adopted by a majority of members within the UN uh, system. But I do expect that there will be an ongoing conversation within the continent. And I think if we look at it, On such a critical issue, uh, it's probably also relating to issues of capacity, lack of coordination uh, within the African Union. And therefore, countries did not necessarily find the space and the opportunity to actually exchange views, as I would argue uh, they should have. Uh, Because I do think whenever the continent manages to speak in more or less a, a singular voice, its voice is elevated within global affairs. But I do think you can certainly see a divided uh, continent when it comes to perceiving Africa's role uh, within the world. Also because I think if you look at the countries that are currently sitting on the UN Security Council, uh, the African countries, the non-permanent members, uh, they largely spoke uh, but from a national voice and a national sort of position. So I think they themselves did not do enough in terms of coordinating with the AU Commission and also with the African Union in saying, look, this is how we interpret uh, what has happened. This is how we are likely to vote. But we would like to see also a more coordinated African voice here. We've not just seen divisions between African states, but also within countries themselves. I mean, South Africa, I think, you know, we saw the the foreign minister immediately make a strong response about the invasion, condemning it. But other members of the government haven't taken such a strong position. I mean, it clearly is a, an issue. Yes, that is true. And, and, and again, I think that also speaks to even internally, Uh, issues of uh, a lack of coordination. So if you take, for instance, the South African position, it clearly shows that both within government and also uh, within even the governing party and its its, uh, alliance partners, there was certainly not uh, one narrative or one coherent voice that came out. And as a result of that, I think different actors have interpreted South Africa's position differently. So on the one side, um, you've got internal criticism that the original position leaned too much towards the position that was adopted by Europe and the US. And on the other side, you've also got criticism that uh, uh, South Africa has perhaps not been as strong enough on, let's say, calling out uh, NATO for expanding uh, further eastwards. So you've got criticism coming from both sides. By the time the vote uh, happened, what you saw was a South Africa trying to rebalance and trying to uh, sort of please uh, different uh, conflicting voices that were coming out of society. 
And therefore, the position that ended up coming out was one that is more based on principle. So, of course, the principle of uh, the peaceful resolution of conflicts um, and the fact that um, all sides should basically uh, advocate and create the conditions for dialogue. But that is quite different to the initial position that came out, which was much more forceful in, in going as far as saying that Russia needs to withdraw, uh, that there needs to be respect for the principle of sovereignty. But even in that statement, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation did also say it is important for all sides to take into account the security concerns that have also been voiced uh, by Russia. I wonder whether now it might be useful here if you told us a little bit about how Russia is perceived in different parts of the continent, thinking about the importance of its historical support for the decolonization and liberation struggles in southern Africa. To what extent do you think that has shaped some of the responses that we've seen from governments in the continent? History continues to play a role in shaping uh, perceptions of global politics. So yes, on the one side, uh, Russia is seen you know, as having uh, essentially supported uh, the anti-apartheid uh, um, movement, but also the anti-colonial movement. Of course, not just Russia, but broadly speaking, uh, the Soviet Union, which of course Ukraine was an integral member of. But it's not only history directed towards uh, Russia that continues to shape opinions in Africa. It is also the, the historical inconsistencies of the role of European countries and also the U.S. when it comes on the one side to the anti-colonial uh, movement, but also on the other side in terms of what has happened uh, since 1990. So I think one of uh, the other reasons why uh, some countries were perhaps reluctant um, to support uh, that resolution is because they felt that there was a double standard uh, when it comes to generally uh, armed conflict in the last uh, few decades, and that the type of reaction that we have seen uh, towards Ukraine has not necessarily been replicated when it comes to other conflicts in other quarters of the world, whether it's on Iraq, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Israel and Palestine, um, Libya, so all of these factors have actually played a role and continue to play a role in shaping uh, perceptions. So certain actors within the continent view supporting that resolution not in necessarily a principled manner of opposing any armed conflict, irrespective of, 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 of who is actually perpetrating that armed conflict, but they see supporting that resolution as essentially supporting, let's say, you know, in inverted commas, a Western bloc of countries that has not necessarily always acted consistently uh, when it comes to the issue of conflict. I think we saw the global powers initially scrambling to do all they could to prevent the Russian invasion and then uniting strongly to condemn the war and imposing crippling sanctions on on Russia in an attempt to curtail the fighting and obviously from reactions that we've seen from commentators but also on social media there definitely seemed to be a sense in Africa that 
there is a double standard that not all conflicts around the world are treated equally. And and I think this has unfortunately been a, a, a what has contributed, you know, to the divisions that we are seeing. But it's also what has contributed, I think, to a lack of coordination when it comes to uh, the global response. So essentially the weaknesses and the erosion of multilateral institutions, which we saw even prior uh, to this particular conflict escalating, has contributed um, to how this conflict is being viewed, not only within Africa, but in other uh, parts of the global south. Um, So if we take, for instance, what impact these so-called coalitions of the willing have had in eroding the trust, not only within the multilateral institutions, but more specifically eroding Uh, confidence in the role of the US and in the role of uh, Europe in dealing with armed conflict. We also have to look at um, what impact, for instance, in terms of the erosion of trust in multilateral institutions, uh, the global pandemic has had. Uh, We see that in most parts of Africa, uh, the West is largely getting the blame for an unequal distribution of vaccines, uh, but also for an unequal distribution of uh, uh, PPEs. And the, the, the perception from many quarters in Africa has been that the West has taken care of its own interests and neglected global institutions like the World Health Organization. So this escalation of the conflict takes place at a time when trust in the multilateral institutions is generally low, but more specifically at the role of the US and Europe within those multilateral institutions. I wanted to go back to this question of double standards again. I'm sure you've seen and heard the reports regarding the discrimination against Africans living in Ukraine and trying to seek refuge in neighbouring countries like Poland and Hungary. What has been the reaction to this on on the continent, especially you know when we've seen how unwilling European countries have been to accept migrants from Africa? Uh, that's a very good point and a good question. And I think what has basically happened is that the moment that uh, students and uh, residents in Ukraine. Um, started, you know, posting and started discussing the issue of how they are being treated. I think this did not necessarily help the cause of uh, Ukraine in getting uh, support from Africa, because then that also changed the narrative uh, towards why is it that Africans are actually uh, not being well treated uh, within Ukraine. And also, not only within Ukraine, but also by some of the other uh, neighboring countries uh, from Ukraine, who basically opened up their borders, uh, scrambled to change even their immigration policies um, towards uh, migrants uh, from Ukraine. But at the same time, we saw the struggles, you know, that African students, especially, and also Asian students were facing. And they were being told blatantly by authorities within uh, Ukraine that, no, we are um, are letting uh, Ukrainians uh, leave uh, uh, first. So 
this unfortunately played into uh, the loss of solidarity, perhaps, uh, towards uh, Ukraine. In fact, one could argue that because the two sort of principal goals that have been outlined uh, by the Kremlin, so the whole idea of denazification and also demilitarization, what has tended to happen is that more and more uh, people, not because of, of what the Kremlin was saying, but because of what has been coming out of Ukraine itself. So you actually have more interest now amongst various actors within Africa who have actually been studying, for instance, uh, or, 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 or pretty much researching the emergence of right-wing movements within Europe generally, but also within uh, Ukraine. And also uh, the attraction of certain uh, extremist and right-wing groupings going to Ukraine to fight against uh, Russia. So this has become an issue for debate amongst many quarters uh, within Africa. And I would argue that this is not debated because Russia said so. It is debated because of some of the experiences that African and Asian students have been documenting and outlining within Ukraine. I know there's been a lot of criticism of the Western media response to this crisis. You know, we've seen journalists talking about the fact that, you know, this war in, is happening in Ukraine, a supposedly civilised European country, presumably in opposition to the uncivilised African or Middle East and, and Asian countries, where conflict is seen to usually take place. Has this portrayal of the conflict by particularly by western media has this fed into also this discontent and this concerns around around how africans themselves have been treated in ukraine itself and in the countries where they've tried to seek refuge it's it's definitely contributed to the narrative and also to the discussion uh, on on a few points uh, one uh, because it's generally an ahistorical view that's emerging from many Western uh, sort of um, outlets, one which seeks to portray, you know, Europe as somehow, you know, that it's, it's such a surprise that conflict, you know, takes place uh, in Europe uh, when we know very well the history, whether it's uh, Yugoslavia, but also when you go back, we know that, um, you know, it's largely the European powers that were responsible for the greatest wars that we've seen, uh, whether it's World War One, World War Two, the colonial era, but also in some of the wars that have been waged after 1990. They may not have taken place in Europe, but we certainly know who the key protagonists for, that, for those conflicts were. But on the other side, it also highlights, and I'm not saying, you know, these journalists are racist and all of that, but it highlights a lack of self-reflection and a lack of sensitivity. Because, I mean, you hear sometimes that, you know, oh, these people are blue-eyed, uh, blonde hair, they are not poor, they are middle-class people. Uh, this is not, you know, right that this should be taking place. So it also highlights a, a real lack of understanding when it comes to even the issue of migration especially migration towards uh, Europe, because what we know for a fact is that 
most migrants who actually do find their way, you know, to Europe are not necessarily the poorest of the poor in the societies that they come from. Oftentimes, it's people who are able to pay their way uh, to Europe. And then the poorest of the poor tend to migrate internally within those countries, but also in neighboring countries. So we generally see that, um, you know, most of the countries that bear the brunt of refugees and, and, and migration are not necessarily European countries, but they are African countries and Middle Eastern countries where conflicts are actually taking place. So to suddenly assume that people who are leaving Ukraine, you know, are middle class people and therefore others who are coming into Europe are not middle class, they are poor, perhaps also not uh, civilized. This is the perception that is, that is at least um, being debated uh, within Africa. And unfortunately, that does not help the European cause, it does not help uh, the United States cause, and it certainly doesn't help Ukraine. And so this way in which this conflict and the movement of people has been portrayed has definitely negatively impacted African perceptions towards uh, what is happening. Thanks, Palani. I'd like to shift gear a little bit now and talk about some of the implications that the conflict in Ukraine might have for Africa itself. The economic sanctions that are being imposed on Russia, they are going to have a massive impact on the global economy. We're going to see fuel prices rise, food prices rise. How do you think that this will affect African countries and African citizens? We are already seeing the effects of it. Um, we've seen, you know, bread prices uh, have gone up quite considerably. We've seen also uh, fuel prices have gone up quite considerably. Right at the time when Africa should be focusing and wanted to focus on an economic recovery on the back of the pandemic, we are now basically prolonging that process. And, and, and so there's definitely an economic cost. Russia trades also considerably with North African countries, but also a country like South Africa has significant investments also in uh, Russia. So we've got companies like Nespers who are invested in the tech industry uh, within uh, Russia. So they will be negatively impacted. So generally living standards are going to um, either stagnate or actually decline. And this is unfortunate because prior to the pandemic, we saw that for about 20 years, at least six or seven of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world were African economies. So this will have definitely a negative impact. But I do think we also need to look at the opportunities at times because there's quite a number of countries in Africa that have also discovered uh, gas, for instance, you know, countries like Algeria will now seek uh, to sell more of their gas into Europe, uh, primarily through the lines that link the country with Italy. Uh, we know that um, even countries like Namibia have discovered gas uh, resources, um, but also countries like Mozambique. Um, so there are countries that may, for instance, seek to benefit uh, from this. 
But there's also uh, countries which uh, may seek to benefit in terms of the uh, supply of uh, things like fertilizers. Um, and, and these countries will also seek to up their production, you know, to deal with the shortages that we are likely to see. But generally speaking, the impact is negative. Also because it focuses the diplomatic energy of Europe and the United States away from Africa. So the mere fact that the diplomatic energy of uh, Europe and the US will now primarily focus on Ukraine and focus within Europe, um, it is questionable to what extent some of the commitments that we saw at the recent EU-Africa summit can actually be fulfilled. It is also questionable to what extent the U.S. policy towards Africa will change to one that is more developmental and less security focused. Yeah, and I mean, we're also, as well as the turning of a diplomatic focus and maybe the, the security focus away from, from Africa, we may also see, as partly as a result of the economic crisis, European donors are likely to be refocusing their resources on supporting Ukraine, but also looking after the millions of refugees that they themselves will be sheltering. And obviously this will have a, an implication for those African governments which require support from external countries, from Western countries. Are African governments really thinking about the potential fallout from the, from the conflict and, and how they might be able to mitigate some of these dangers? Well... They are thinking about it, uh, and there are also ongoing discussions, let's say, outside of government, but these discussions also seem to inform uh, state actors. So it is very much uh, on, uh, something that is on the radar in, in, in terms of measuring the impact and trying to understand uh, whether some of the commitments that have been made by the US and European partners can actually be fulfilled in an environment of ongoing conflict in Ukraine and uh, perhaps even in, in, in the broader European continent. So this is something that is very much um, forming part of the national discourse. In terms of mitigating, I think these discussions have been taking place um, throughout the pandemic because one of the things that the pandemic showed African countries was how vulnerable they are to external crises, whether it comes to um, the inability to actually provide and manufacture their own vaccines or different medical equipment. So the discussion perhaps on the last two years uh, in Africa has become much more elevated towards how do you build a certain degree of strategic autonomy? How do you support things like the creation of regional value chains? How can we um, mobilize more resources domestically um, and channel them towards uh, African development initiatives? And some of the catalysts for these discussions have been, one, the pandemic and, and, and how it's shown the vulnerabilities, but also key initiatives that fall under Africa's Agenda 2063, such as uh, the African Continental Free Trade Area. One of the things that it seeks to do 
is to address some of those economic uh, weaknesses and the susceptibility of African countries to external shocks. I've got one final question for you, Pilani. It seems that intensified great power competition is, is likely going to be a consequence of this crisis. Given that, how should the continent position itself in, a, in an age of great power tensions? What can governments do to shield themselves from the fallout of this clash between these global powers? The main thing that African stakeholders need to be doing is to accelerate the existing plans towards regional integration and greater regional cooperation um, on the continent. As it is, I mean, Africa is only trading something like uh, 18% we have of intra-African trade. Now, that leaves us quite vulnerable as a continent. Uh, We need to create a bigger market uh, within the continent. And we need to have greater coordination when it comes to Africa's relations with external powers. Uh, It means that we need to ensure that when it comes to key policy issues and key multilateral institutions, that Africa is able to speak with one voice. And it means that perhaps when it comes to the African Union, it's perhaps about focusing on less issues, but issues that actually have an impact on the whole continent, enhancing coordination over there. So the only way that Africa can actually better shield itself and be more resilient within the global economy is actually by enhancing its own integration process, ensuring that uh, even amongst the regional economic communities, there's greater coordination with the African Union. So that when such matters actually arise, uh, you have a better opportunity for the continent to speak with one voice, to be better heard in world affairs. And lastly, the continent has to consistently advocate for the strengthening of um, the multilateral architecture and multilateral institutions. It has to advocate for a rules-based order. It has to advocate for a global environment where might is not necessarily right. And that is by strengthening multilateralism. Um, Because individually, African countries are certainly uh, not in a position to be taken as seriously in global affairs. But when they coordinate, I think we definitely stand a better chance of being resilient, of shielding ourselves from external shocks, but also of contributing to the building and the reform of existing multilateral institutions. Thanks, Palani. That was, that was really great. Really interesting conversation. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. To learn more about our work or read our reports, visit crisisgroup.org. I'm Alyssa Jobson. The Horn is produced by Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.